Thank you, Ken. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all this morning. We're in Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 5 on this Father's Day. And it so happens that the text that we're going to be looking at this morning actually fits really well into the theme of Father's Day. Because on either side of the text that we're going to looking at, Jesus says a couple of things that frame everything else that he's going to say. He says, first of all, um, let people see your good deeds so that they can glorify your Father in heaven. It's actually the first time that the phrase, the word Father, is used of God in the New Testament. And that's off the lips of Jesus. But it finishes off by saying, if you do all of these things, you will be like your Father in heaven. There's many uh, amazing things that children can say to their dads to make them feel good. One of the things, if you ever hear your kids say something like, when I grow up, I want to be just like dad. That's a pretty sweet thing to hear, right? If you hear that from one of your children. Well, that's what we're going to call our sermon this morning. When I grow up, I want to be just like dad. Because Jesus gives us these verses to help us understand who our Heavenly Father is and to be able to grow up in Him to be an expression of who our Heavenly Father is on the earth. Not just for dads, not just for men, but for men, for women, for girls, for all of us, that we can be an expression of our Heavenly Father on the earth today. So we're going to look at these verses and we're going to start in Matthew chapter 5. And uh, we're going to pick them apart and see what God is going to say to us through them. So first of all, let's look at Matthew 5, verse 17 to 20. Jesus says this, Do not think that I come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you put yourself for a moment in the place of the followers who have followed Jesus up the mountain to hear him speak, they have just been given, as Dave Perry gave us a few weeks ago, eight wonderful blessings. We call them the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are you when people say all sorts of bad things about you. And then Jesus goes on to strongly affirm these people and he says, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You can imagine them at the end of that particular phrase feeling, Wow, really? Me? Us ordinary people? can be the salt of the earth and the light of the world? Jesus says, yes, that is who you are. So just as they're feeling up in the clouds and thinking this is wonderful, suddenly Jesus begins to unpack to them what it actually means. And probably as it first came to them, it must have felt like a pretty big dose of cold water after being lifted so high. Unless your righteousness 
is exceeding of that of the Pharisees, if it's not better than the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, you've just built us all the way up to bring us all the way down. These Pharisees, these scribes, from the moment they're born, pretty much, they do everything right that's in the law. Everything there, they can tick all the boxes, all the way through life. Most of these ordinary folks who are sitting around, they realize they started missing the boxes when they were very young. Many of them probably feel that they will never add up and never be able to catch up to where these Pharisees and scribes are at. And Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to have even more righteousness than they. That's a pretty strong statement. How can you be more righteous than the Pharisees? Well, what Jesus goes on to unpack for us, which is what we're going to look at over the next few verses, is that the Pharisees were very keen to make sure that the outward appearance of everything that they did looked just right. In fact, later on in Matthew, Jesus says to them, you know what you guys are like? You're like whitewashed tombs. You look absolutely beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. And he says to them, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup. And then the outside may also be clean. How can we live more right than the Pharisees? By starting on the inside. By cleaning up the inside. And doing inside what needs to be done, which will eventually come out. But instead of trying to make everything look absolutely amazing on the outside, which is what the Pharisees did, just be honest with what's on the inside and begin to work that out. And then Jesus gives us six ways, normal life ways, of how we can work out on the inside what God wants us to do so that our righteousness can exceed the Pharisees and so that we can be like our Father in heaven and we can grow up to be like our dad. Let's work through those six this morning. The first is found in verses 21 to 26. I'm just going to read each passage and unpack it briefly as we go through and just allow it to land wherever the Holy Spirit wants it to land in your life this morning. The first thing Jesus talks about is relational maturity. Verses 21 to 26. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. 
Each one of these examples from life that Jesus gives us starts in the same way. He starts by saying, you have heard it said. And then he says, but I say to you. Now, it's important to know what Jesus is doing here. Because he's not saying Moses said or the law said, but I say to you. He's saying you have heard it said. And what he's referring to is this. The rabbis, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law had taken the law that came to them through Moses and they interpreted it with their own interpretations. They added to it. They changed it. They made it into something else. And so when Jesus said, you have heard it said, what he's referring to is what these scribes and Pharisees and rabbis have said about the law. He's already said he hasn't come to take the law away. Jesus is not saying Moses said this, but I say to you this. He's saying you have heard it said people have interpreted the law wrong. And so I'm going to put that interpretation right for you. And he does it six times in different things. So how does he do it here for his disciples? The word Jesus uses here is not kill. It is murder. It's different from kill. He leaves room, as does the rest of the Bible, for such things as accidental killings, state executions, and involvement in war. This is the premeditated and deliberate taking of someone else's life. And if you're one of the disciples who's sitting there, this is probably, for many of them, the only box in the Ten Commandments that they think they can tick. Everyone else of those Ten Commandments, they'd read them through and think, nope, 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 thou shalt not commit murder. Oh, I guess I can tick that box. I haven't killed anybody yet. So they're feeling good about the fact that there's one commandment that they can keep, and Jesus just raises the bar on them. Oh, no, really? Now I have to take that tick out of the box as well? Because Jesus takes it beyond the outward of what happens, and he goes on the inside. And he says, listen, don't be stewing away with anger on the inside towards your brother, towards people who have hurt you, or you might have hurt them. Don't be doing that. Because when you do that, and you allow that to grow inside of you, It is like you're murdering people. You start insulting them on the inside. You start calling them down and pulling them down and saying bad words about them. You fool. You empty head is the literal translation of the Greek. You moros is the second one from which we get our word moron. We might not say it out of our lips because we're far too Canadian to do that. But we might say it in our hearts. And how can that, Peter, equate to murder? Well, in this way. When you call someone a fool or an idiot or a moron or something else, what you're doing is you're stripping them of their God-given identity. And you're giving them another name. That is ripping them off of life. Ripping them off of who God has made them to be. And do you know the worst person you can do that to? Sometimes. Yourself. Don't call yourself an empty head. 
Don't call yourself an idiot. Don't call yourself a moron. Don't call yourself any names under the sun like that. And certainly don't do it to other people. And deal with the anger and the frustration that grows up inside that gets you doing that. If you want your righteousness to exceed the Pharisees, if you want to grow up to be like your father in heaven, deal right with the anger inside. And if you've got something against a brother, deal with it before you go to the place of worship. Don't go to God and praise him and say, yes, Lord, everything's fine or whatever. But actually, you've got issues with people that you're worshiping with. This is not dealing with people that are outside in the world. This is dealing with your brother. This is family business. And you know as well as I do that you can get more angry and more hurtful inside the walls of your family than you can outside. There was one night a few years ago, I was standing outside the bedroom of one of our girls. She'd been an absolute bear. Now, I know you don't believe that about my girls. And for the most part, I wouldn't either. But she had just been an absolute bear. She'd been rude. She'd been disrespectful. She didn't want to go to bed. We'd had a huge fight. And I was up here in terms of my frustration level. And I put her to bed. I switched the light off. I came out. I slammed the door shut in the hallway. And I was standing in the hallway. I wanted to go downstairs and do something different, but I couldn't. I was standing there in the hallway. I was so frustrated. Now, I know I'm the only dad in the room that that's ever happened to. And as I was standing there, normally last thing at night, from right from birth to whenever they don't want it anymore, I'll go into the girl's bedroom last thing at night. I'll pray for them. I'll tell them how much I love them. And I'll say goodnight. Well, on this night, I could not go back into my daughter's bedroom and tell her I loved her because I was too frustrated. I was too angry. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? But it happens. It happens to all of us. In different ways. I was offended in my heart. And a little voice came into my head. Peter, I want you to go back into that bedroom. And I want you to tell her that you love her. And that there's nothing that she can ever do that will ever stop you from loving her. Well, I couldn't do it. I was so frustrated. And I love her dearly. But at that moment in time, I was worked up. And I was stood on the top of the stairs wrestling with God. And finally I thought, okay, Lord. So I went back inside, got beside the bed. And I told her I loved her. There was nothing that she could ever do in life that was ever going to stop me from loving her. And as I said it, the frustration inside of my own heart began to unravel. And something unraveled in her. She broke, she cried, she wept. We had a wonderful moment together of reconciliation. Where did the breakthrough happen? In here, I wanted to break through in my daughter. Jesus wanted to break through in here, right? It starts inside. That's where it starts. First of all, relational maturity. Secondly, sexual purity. You have heard it said, verse 27, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart, in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Next to not murdering people, the next box that might have been checked in many of the people sitting around Jesus, well, I haven't at least committed adultery either. I haven't slept and had sex with somebody else's wife or somebody that's not my wife. So I can tick that box as well. And again, Jesus raises the bar. Because it's not about the outward appearance. That's important. But what's really important is what's going on inside. And he raises the bar higher than any man or most men even believe is possible. Don't take a third look. Don't take a second look. Don't even take a first lustful look. Don't even take the first one. Whoa, that's a bar that's way up in the sky. When you lust after another woman in your heart, you're already breaking your marriage vows and committing adultery. So you need to deal with that issue and you need to deal violently with it. Pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. That sounds pretty violent, doesn't it? There were some early church fathers that took it literally. I don't need to tell you those stories. But for a thousand years, at least, the church, in the West anyway, was bound up in this thing that we need to brutalize our bodies somehow to help us to become more pure. And they discovered that whatever they did, it didn't actually help. Because Jesus isn't telling us to pluck our eyes out or to cut our hands off, but he is telling us to deal violently and to deal strongly with those things that cause impurity in our own hearts. So Peter, what does that mean for for today? Well, if your cell phone causes you to sin, what are you going to do with it? If your television causes you to sin, what are you going to do with it? This is where the rubber hits the road. You want to grow up to be like dad? Dad looks at all the women he made with absolute purity in his heart as his daughters who he loves. And they're all beautiful in his eyes. If we want to grow up to be like dad, What are we allowing into our eye gate? What are we allowing into our soul? Now, I'm not saying first thing you should do with your iPhone is throw it away because there's a better thing than throwing it away. It's ruling it. Ruling it in the grace and the authority and the power of God. There's apps you can use. There's things you can covenant eyes and things like that. You find a partner and you say, listen, I have a trouble with my iPhone sometimes and I want you to help me with this. And, and so I'm going to get this report sent to you once a month. People do it with me. I've got people who send me reports once a month. And I know what's going on, actually once a week. And if something goes south, I can get on the phone and say, uh, what happened this week? And we can talk about it and pray. Get in the light. And, and women, please don't pretend that you guys don't deal with this stuff. It's life. Right? It's life in the raw, and God wants to help us. Jesus wants to help us. If that doesn't work, those apps don't work, put the phone away for a while. You really can live without one. I, I, know, I know it's difficult, but we can. Really, people lived for thousands of years without them. Now, I know it sounds impossible, but it's possible. Rule it. And listen, if you can't rule it, throw it out. Because it's better 
to have a, a marriage that is working well than to have a phone that's working well. Isn't it? Here endeth the lesson. Deal violently with this stuff. Because unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Incidentally, as we go through these six points, if by the end of it you're feeling, oh my goodness, I'm so far under that there's no way I'm going to get up, just hang on. Because I've got some wonderful good news for you at the end. Third, marital unity. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I know in our current world, there's lots of people whose lives have been hurt and wounded by divorce. And some of you may be in this room right now. So please, nobody's bringing condemnation to you today. That's not what this is about. But Jesus is saying very clearly, a marriage, which is what the Jewish people understood, is meant to be a reflection of God's relationship with his people. And in New Testament terms, of Jesus' relationship with the church. That's what we're reflecting in our marriages. And so Jesus says to them, listen, these scribes and these people used to, they've been saying to you, you can get married if you're uh, one of the more liberal um, scribes and rabbis. You'd be teaching people, you can get married. And if your husband burns your food, that's a defilement in your home. And you can divorce. Sorry, if your wife burns, well, you know what? It's more likely to be the husband, isn't it? Let's go the other way around. If your husband burns the food, you can divorce him. For that, because it's a defilement in the home. Now, obviously, because of the way the culture was, that generally worked the other way around. In our culture, it might work. I burn the food a lot more than anybody else in my house. Whenever I cook, the fire alarm goes off. I don't know why that is. (laughs) Anyway, you could divorce somebody for something as simple as that. And Jesus is saying, what are you doing? You've heard it said that, but I say to you that if you do that, you are causing somebody to commit adultery. Don't divorce. And he's not incidentally saying, oh, if there's some sexual impurity in your husband and spouse, you just go ahead and divorce them. He's saying, listen, if it comes to the end of that, you can, but that's never the best way. The best way is to work it out. Divorces don't happen because of sexual immorality. Divorces happen because of hardness of heart. And if we want to our righteousness to exceed the Pharisees, and if we want to grow up into our, who our father is, we need to stand by our vows. We had a wonderful example of this yesterday. Heather was telling a little bit of the story between Tony and Heather Grande at the memorial yesterday. If I was to ask you how many people in this room, your lives have been blessed by Tony and Heather, probably most of the hands that have been here a while would go up, if not all of us. We've all been blessed by Tony and Heather, haven't we? You know, that might not have happened. 27 years ago, their marriage was on the rocks. 
It was done. It was finished. But they met Jesus. And even though there had been bad things that had happened, they worked it out together. They forgave each other. They came into the love of Jesus. And their marriage has been a testimony to the redemption that can happen when our hearts are softened inside by the love of God. Because it's what happens inside that matters. Right? Marital purity. Number four, verbal integrity. Again, you have heard it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. It would be pretty pointless in my case anyway. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Again, you have to understand what's going on for these folks. Originally in the law, God gave provision for people to swear by the name of God, make a vow by the name of God, so that it would be absolutely complete and would be done perfectly. But again, the rabbis over time had twisted it. By the time it got to Jesus' day, there were a number of different levels of oath. If you swore by the name of God, you had to keep that one. But there were some that were a little less than that. You could swear by heaven, or you could swear by earth, or you could swear by Jerusalem, the city of the great king. And then that meant something, but not as much as if you swore by God. And then if you go even further down, you can swear by things like the hair on your head. Well, that didn't really mean an awful lot. And Jesus is saying, what, what are you doing? Don't swear at all. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Which again was one of Tony's phrases. How does that relate to us today? Well, we live in a very interesting world, don't we? Over the last little while, the chief law enforcer, officer, enforcement officer of the United States, the chief lawyer of the United States, and the head of the Justice Department of the United States, the Attorney General, put up his hand in a Senate hearing and said, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But when he was asked a question, he said, I don't want to answer that question. So what does it mean when you put up your hand and you say, I'm going to swear to tell the whole truth? What's happened to our society? What's happened to the foundations that we're built on? What we ought to swear when we get into court is, I swear to say whatever I need to say to get you to do what I want you to do. That's what I swear to do. doesn't matter whether it's the truth or not. It doesn't matter whether it's a shadow or not. And it's certainly never going to be the whole truth. Because if I tell you the whole truth, I'm not going to get what I want out of this procedure. Now, I'm not here to make political statements about what's going on in the United States. But I am here to say that we live in a culture where our word really doesn't matter for a whole lot. And we can blithely say in front of the court of the whole world, because everybody's watching, I swear to tell the whole truth and then not tell the whole truth. And it just passes us by. If we want to be 
growing up into who our father is, every word that he says is refined in the fire thousands of times before he speaks it because he means it. Every single word. And it's a wonderful thing for us because it means when he promises us something, he's going to come good on his promise every time. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So let our yes be yes. Let our no be no. And let's be careful when we think about, you know what? How we say things with our words. Verbal integrity. Radical humility, humility, not humidity. I do one of those every sermon. I don't know whether you pick them up. At least one, if not numerous. I get reminded of them a number of times over the lunch table. Radical humidity. Radical humility. You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Anyone forces you to go one mile with him, go two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. It's amazing how relevant Jesus' teaching is to us 2,000 years later. Let's unpack this a little bit. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was something that was put in the law that was meant to be executed and brought about after a proper court process by the agents of the court. It was never, ever, ever meant to be an issue of personal revenge. Somebody does something to me, I'm going to get it back. It was never meant to be that. But again, that's what it had become. That's what the rabbis were saying. And they had a reason in Jesus' day and age for saying it. They lived under the very cruel oppression of the Roman Empire. And it's a cruelty. Some of you have lived in oppressive cultures. And you know something of what it's like. But if you lived in the Roman culture, that was a whole level of oppression and cruelty that most of us have never even thought of or even seen and witnessed. And what those people had to live with was pretty devastating to their lives. Some of the things the Romans did was pretty horrible. And it served the purpose of the rabbis and the religious leaders, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Stir up that anger. Stir up that desire to retaliate. Stir up that rebellion. There were a number of rebellions in Jew, in the Jewish uh, time of the Roman uh, oppression of them. They were all put down with ruthless efficiency. But it still kept coming. And one of the things that kept coming was this belief that if someone does something to you, you have the right to take back from them what they've done to you. And in fact, some of what Jesus uses as an example is a right out of the Roman oppression. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Who's going to force you to go one mile? Well, actually, the Romans did. They could be coming along a street and, and they've got something carried on their back and they can pick you off the side of the road and say, you... You carry my bags. And you'd have to carry their bags. Carry it a mile. Jesus says to them, listen, if they ask you to carry it a mile, you take it too. You get an example of that when they catch Simon off the side of the road of the crucifixion. Carry Jesus' cross. It was just the way they did things. They could slap you on the side of the face. 
just like that, for no good reason. Turn to them the other cheek. It's a whole different way of doing business. But Jesus is saying, if you want your righteousness to exceed the Pharisees, you need to learn how to live in this sort of an atmosphere. It's not an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And in Canada, there is a disturbing rise of hate crimes. The ones that are in the news are against the Muslims. Rightly so, there's some horrible things that have been happening. It's interesting that the number of hate crimes against Muslims is still nowhere near the number of hate crimes in Canada against Jews. Something worth bearing in mind. But any hate crime is horrible. Where do hate crimes come from? When people pick them apart, these people that blow themselves up at a, at a kid's concert. How do you do that? And in our, in our world, people go back and they're trying to figure out why. They've got to find a reason because it can't just be that people are sinful and the devil is evil and he's out to destroy people. It can't be that simple, right? So you have to find a reason. And they find some reason. The guy in, in Manchester that blew himself up, he'd had a friend that I can't remember. He was either beaten up or killed the year before. And he was a Muslim man and nobody said anything about it and it wasn't in the press or anything. And he became embittered. And where did he go? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is where he went. And we know the results of that. Jesus said, don't do that. We're going to have opportunities in our days as we go on to feel like retaliating. We are. Even Christians. Because bad things will probably happen. And Jesus says, don't go there. Don't go for the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Don't go there. Trust your father in heaven that he'll look after things. Justice belongs to God. God knows what he's doing in these situations. It was just before the Second World War in England. And Germany had been invading other countries and, and taking over and oppressing those countries. There was a little Methodist chapel. And in the Methodist chapel, the preacher was preaching. And in the spirit of the day, he's preaching from the pulpit very loudly that all Germans are evil. And if you don't think that can happen in a Christian church, I'd encourage you to read your history books. Because it happens. And it's cyclical. We can have hate preaching from a pulpit in a church. And people can justify it by their eye for eyes and tooth for tooth or whatever they do. Well, in this particular case, one young man who was a father of two kids stood up in the service and he said, no, they're not. And in the atmosphere of the day, that was like heresy. He paid for it in different ways, as did his family. But his family are very proud of him. That man was my grandfather. And he refused to go with where the world was going. Because he would not do what the world told him to do. He wanted to be a reflection of his father in heaven. He wanted to grow up to be like his dad. Finally, heartfelt mercy. 
You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. At this point, you can imagine his disciples just throwing their hands in the air. Oh, my goodness. There's absolutely no way I can do this. You know how we're treated. You know what happens to us. You know what goes on in our land? How can we possibly love these Romans? Because that was the deal. Love your enemies. That's what Jesus is talking about. Well, let me remind you as I remind myself that Jesus was the example of how to do it. They slapped him on the cheek. He gave them the other. They wanted his tunic. They took everything that he wore. They wanted him to go one mile. He went all the way to hell and back. And when he was hanging on that cross, what was in his heart for the men that drove the nails into his feet and into his hands was nothing but pure, unadulterated, eternal love. That is astonishing. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. Peter, how on earth can we live like that? Let me unpack for you the last little sentence, which is an absolute dynamite sentence if you get it. If you get it wrong, it feels like a killer. Let me read it to you. Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How, how can that not be a downer? Let me unpack it. You have to understand the tense in which Jesus is speaking it. There's three things in here I want to quickly finish with. The first is this. It's a pursuit. Perfection. Pursue perfection. It's okay to go after perfection because God is perfect and one day you're going to be like God. So go after that. Don't set the bar too low. Jesus is setting the bar way up here. Go after perfection. Go for all that God is and everything he has for us. But that's impossible, isn't it? Well, the second thing about therefore be perfect is this. It's actually a promise. It's not just a pursuit. It's a promise. In the tense, it's future tense. It's saying this. You will be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. You think about that. I will be perfect, even as my heavenly father is perfect. What we are now is not who we will become. If we put our trust in Jesus and receive and believe his words, we will be perfect one day in time. But that seems like a far off hope. So this is not just a pursuit. This statement is not just a promise. But it's something very wonderful. It is power. It is power. Jesus breathed on the disciples at the end of the Gospels and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus touched the eyes of the blind man and said, be healed. Jesus touched the ears of the deaf person and said, be opened. These are not words of some sort of future hope that may happen in the future. This is the creator of the universe. This is the God of all life. This is the word of life. Speaking life into what does not already exist. Be opened. Be open. Be healed. And he looks out over the motley crew of his disciples. Who are thinking I'm so far short of whatever God wants for me. And the word of life that brought things into being that are absolutely stunningly beautiful out of things that are absolutely totally dark spoke into the lives of those motley crew of disciples and said, be perfect. And when that word of life comes into us and it connects with the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is perfection in us. We don't get some measure of the Holy Spirit that's less than perfection. He is perfect. And he is in me. I have perfection in me. Do you have perfection in you? Come on, do you have perfection in you? You do. And when that word of life comes in from the Lord of life and it connects with the power of the Holy Spirit who is perfection. We have the power to begin to grow up into being who our Father is. Be perfect, Jesus says. Even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Dads, be perfect. Does that mean you're not going to mess up along? You're going to mess up along the way. But grow up into him. Don't set the bar too low. You don't have to be angry inside. You don't have to take that second and third look or be addicted to something on your iPhone. You don't have to walk out on your wife. You don't have to let words come out of you that you can't keep. You don't have to retaliate and slap back at people who slap you. And you don't have to hate your enemy. You can love them because you have the power of perfection in your very most being and the word of God to release that power in your life. So I'd encourage you today. Be encouraged. God bless you.